Um, we're studying the second institution of divine authority, delegated divine authority, and we're calling, and that's marriage. The first institution of delegated divine authority is the capacity to make decisions or your volition. The second one is marriage, where you have two volitions together. And I, I hope you recall there's another thing that's also coming together in marriage that makes it so challenging. You don't just have two volitions. Well, I want to do this, but I like to do that. You have two sinful natures often operating those volitions, and that's the, that's the struggle. Sometimes we become engineers in our lives where we want to solve problems. We want to design solutions to problems and solve them because they're uncomfortable. When you're, scr- when you're itch, you scratch. You got to scratch that itch. If you're uncomfortable in your seat, you shift over, as we do in these comfortable seats here. If you're cold, you warm up. Uh, you know, in, in life, when there's a problem, you try to solve it. And the problem of your sin nature, the presence of sin isn't going away. It's not getting better. It's not being reformed. And in this sense, I'll borrow something from Jeff Foxworthy. Ladies, he's not really being trained. We want it to be that way, that I'm seeing improvement and maybe you are in certain areas. You are, surely. But not in terms of our sinful nature. It's not getting better. And the other side is, and, and I know there have been theologians that want to say this. It seems to be something that should be obvious for some that, well, if we're saved, then we're saved. And so what, what do we not understand? So we continue in sin. Well, we shouldn't walk in our sinful nature, but we still struggle against it. That's Galatians chapter 5. That's Romans chapter 7. It's pretty explicit in those passages that you're not free from the presence of that tendency towards selfishness and sin, and you won't be until you die, until this body is, uh, is done. The other side of that is after you die, there is no more sinful nature. Absent from the body, present with the Lord, no sin nature. Resurrection body, inheriting eternity, no sinful nature. But here we're struggling with it, and this is why marriage has so many problems. This is why all the delegated institutions of authority have problems. I guess we shot the balloon, right? So a a jet shot a missile and took out a balloon. And he was like, that was just shooting like, that was like shooting balloons. Uh, Every governmental thing is plagued with humans with sinful natures. And so you're supposed to get good and pessimistic about these institutions. And that's what we want to do with marriage, is be cynical after the flesh and recognize that in the spirit and the power of God with his grace, because of our creator who loves us, these things can be resolved. And so we have the good news, as we mentioned last time, and the bad news of marriage in the Proverbs. Um, I didn't quite get to share these with you as much as I wanted to last time. But you know the good news proverbs. We'll start with those in, uh, about marriage. In Proverbs 5.18, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. And the fountain there, it, it doesn't mean anything except the source that is your blessing of refreshment. It doesn't mean having kids. It doesn't mean... Uh, it, it, it's saying that... Your wellspring of fresh, cool water is yours. Enjoy that. And in this context, when, 
Solomon's teaching his sons. He's saying only your wife for you and nobody else's and no one, no, no one else for your wife. It's, it's monogamy, which is ironic given Solomon speaking. And 12.4, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband. She who shames him is like rottenness in his bones. So bone cancer of the soul or a crown of glory. These are your options, ladies. As it breaks down in Proverbs, maybe there's a third option some other way, but these two are definitely uh, possible. You can be either one. And we looked at this one close and said that the center of this proverb, the focus is the, um, the effect. Crown or rottenness, you choose. Crown or rottenness. Now, guys, you better not pull that up next time there's a conflict and say, crown or righteousness, or a crown or rottenness, and, and kind of argue with her. Because that's not good to browbeat people with the scriptures, <clears throat> I'm told. So uh, 12.4, an excellent wife. In 1822, this is one of our life verses, right? He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. I'll review with you real quick the way that says it in, um, in Hebrew. It says he finds a wife. Matzah, that's he finds or he has found Isha, a wife, a woman. By the way, Isha is woman, and I'm translating it wife. Because if you want to do a concordance search in your English Bible on wife, it's always the word woman. A woman isn't necessarily a wife. Well, biblically, the design, when God created woman, he instantaneously, simultaneously created marriage. So he finds a wife or a woman. He finds good. Matzah Isha, Matzah Tov is what it says in Hebrew. He finds a wife or he's found a wife, he's found good. Remember Genesis 2, it's not good that man should be alone. That's the same word, Tov, right? And, and so like last night, what, what, is the, what is a bachelor party? What, what is this in the culture? Well, it's not adultery till tomorrow is the idiot thought in the secular world of a bachelor party. One last night of whatever, debauch. When, as you know, very often these people in a secular frame will uh, take their buddy who's getting married to a strip club or some other way to, to focus on sex and really focus on woman and woman's body. That'll be what it's about. A lot of other things may happen, but that's really what it's about. So you have, instead of what should happen is the, the men should encourage him and tell him, you know, remind him what he's, what he's in for. They're trying to uh, just have a celebration of the flesh in a very sinful mind, mindset. And, and it, it's the opposite of what you do with a woman. Instead of honoring her, you try to lust and dishonor her. It's idiotic. Obviously, it's idiotic. And, and I'm not being just some sort of prude or moralist. It's really absurd and, and destructive. And I could say so many things, but... What we do is that we get our men together and we honor our wives. We tell Jeff, we tell the guys getting married, that God has blessed us with our wives and they're not perfect, but they're God's gift to us and we're very blessed to have them. And ladies, last night you were honored, all of you were revered. And the more you let your men or encourage your men to come to these uh, gatherings, the more you should feel exalted 
on the pedestal that God places you as a woman. And for example, 1 Peter 3.7. What verse men? 1 Peter 3.7, as we'll look at. But this is the, the nature of the way we're supposed to think about our wives and our marriages. He finds a wife. He finds good and obtains favor from the Lord. And it's very tight how he starts with the verb and goes to the object of the verb. This is from God. Marriage is a blessing that God's given us, and we don't want it to, we don't want to portray it in any other way. House and wealth are an inheritance from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. Now, a wife that lacks prudence, I'm not sure where she's from, but, uh, <laughs> but, but a prudent wife is something that you can't give your kids. You want your, I've got these sons, right? We who have sons and daughters, we want them to marry well. We want them to do that wisely. And we know that it's going to hurt even in the best possible scenario. It's going to be painful and they're going to have to grow through that pain and all the various things. People are icebergs, aren't they? You get married and you, you know the t- top of the iceberg. You know what's above the water. You know what you've been able to see and understand. We know what we saw. We first looked, okay, that looks good. And then you know more because you've, spent time with the above the the surface iceberg. But (laughs) then you get married and you start exploring the reality that that the other person is. There's a lot going on and it's mostly below the surface and you don't know. And I'm not saying everybody's running around these skeletons in the closet. I'm saying we're deep, involved creatures with many aspects to our character that we all fully don't grasp about ourselves. And that's part of the process of discovery in marriage is you get to know this other person, right? And you chose door number three. I don't know what's behind it, but let's go through. Let's walk through. And you commit up front, I'm going to do this. No matter what happens, I'm trusting the Lord. He said, whom God joined together, let no man separate. God can make a prudent woman. God can make a woman of wisdom and virtue and integrity. And when he does and you have one, you need to thank him every day. And and I think all this stuff is from God ultimately. Fathers are from God, but the direct gift of the wife in verse verse 14 and of course, Proverbs 31.10, an excellent wife who can find for her worth is far above jewels. Have you all heard that saying, uh, God's gift to woman? That guy is such a cocky uh, fool. He thinks he's God's gift to women. You've heard that saying. That was probably thrown around a lot back in the 80s. So was the phrase male chauvinist pig. Remember that little little. That doesn't make sense now. Male, what is that? But in, in the culture, but um, but um, you know, the idea that a man is is you know has this this attitude that you're lucky to be talking to me, that kind of thing, confidence. Well, the the truth of the the gift to to woman or um, is is backwards. If you read Genesis two, which we looked at last time. Woman is God's gift to man. There's a reciprocal where he becomes a blessing to her, but, but if you look at the, the design of marriage, man is given dominion over everything, and he doesn't have a suitable helper, and then God brings the woman to the man. She is the gift that God's given us. Now, if you 
are sitting here and smiling and nodding and saying, oh, yeah, that's, yeah, that's how it's supposed to be. But you're not honoring of your wife. You're not recognizing that she is a woman and so different, made differently from you, gentlemen, with a different purpose, but related. If you're not aware of this and mindful of this, you can, you can make some pretty serious mistakes. And so we want not only for all of us to embrace this gift and the blessing that, that it is that we have these excellent women God has given us. And I told the men last night, and I always do, that they've all married up. You've all married up. The soul of any organization is that womanhood that makes a house into a home. The women are more concerned about coarse language generally than the men are for a reason. And they remind us, hey, what you're saying, why would you say they're sensitive? It's amazing how you're made and how God designed you to help us. But if we're not recognizing the blessing that God's given us, we're, we're really dishonoring him and his daughter. And so just a challenge on the good side of things. But then there's the bad side. Proverbs is full of uh, iceberg language that you didn't necessarily know what you're getting into because she never really argued with you until you were stuck in the house with her. Proverbs 21.9, it's better to live in a corner of a roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. And so thankfully, there are none of those here. My translation, Tov, which is interesting in the context of talking about women, Tov, good. And so in, in a comparative, it's better. Better to Yashav, to dwell upon the Pinath Gog, the corner of a roof than to have uh, and it doesn't say have it just says then eshet a wife a wife of quarrels and a house of sharing that's what it says in Hebrew and it you just get the Hebrew idiom the way they're hearing it a wife of quarrels woman described by noun wife of quarrels and a house of association or a house of sharing we could do a house of sharing if, we're, if everybody lives peaceably. We could know a woman of quarrels as long as they don't have to be stuck in the same place. But you put those two things together, a wife of quarrels and a house of sharing, just kill me. That's the, that's the language, not the just kill me part. But these two things don't tend to want to go together. But you might find yourself in that situation. Now, the application of this is pretty obvious, isn't it? For men... You're in trouble. If you're married to a wife of quarrels and a house of sharing, that's horrible. And it's better to live in the corner of the roof. For the men, we just kind of have to say, <laughs> sorry for you, that's going to be hard. But what's the application for women? One, one thing will, will happen is that, well, in a, in a sinful sense of, uh, of self-importance, the arrogance of feminism will say, see, the Bible's misogynistic. And they'll miss, completely miss the point and the wisdom in the proverb that is for the ladies. Maybe don't be a wife of quarrels since you're in a house of sharing, right? Don't be characterized by this. 
And, and I know that sometimes the, the wife of Quarles will say, he can't get anything right. I have to correct his papers constantly. And that's a hard burden you have to share. I understand that, that some of us are more knuckleheaded than others. And it, it, that's a tough thing. And everybody's going to suffer some way or another. Everybody's going to th- serve the Lord under pressure. But I think what you, he- what you have here is, uh, what do you want, ladies, for your husband's life to be like? Oh, I want him to wish he was in the corner of the roof. What, what do you want his life to be like? I want him to hate his life. Do you? Are you that kind of a person? That's what a wife of quarrels would be like. Oh, yeah, he's getting it. No. No, you're going to put on Christ. You're going to walk by the Spirit. You're going to live out the fruit of the Spirit, which is love and joy and peace and patience. You don't want anybody to be in a tortured situation. Well, if I'm so torturous, well, I guess he should just give me a divorce. Well, that's the, that's the humanistic worldly solution. Maybe, maybe it would be better to do something about yourself. Do your job, as we tell the men constantly. What's your role? Where's your walk with God? Where's your walk by the Spirit? Where's your love for God? Right? Let, let's get to wh- who you are and what you're about and stop being this way. Don't be a wife of quarrels. What we all acknowledge is a sanctified sort of joke. It's humorous and it's so true to life. And Proverbs 21.9 is actually great advice for women to think about the outcome of your choices in the life of your husband. Jesus said, whom God joined together, let no man separate. Well, if I'm so bad and so hard to live with, well, he might as well just you know, go figure it out somewhere else. A man doesn't have the right to do that. There are two cases where the New Testament provides for divorce. In Matthew 19, as we've talked about, you've got um, the, the issue of adultery. And Jesus says, if your wife commits adultery, then Moses allowed divorce for your hardness of heart, unforgiveness. So you can commit, commit her in that culture to a life of poverty or prostitution because you're unforgiving for the horrible thing that she's done. That's the context of the divorce provision in Deuteronomy that Jesus teaches in Matthew 19. You can look it up. In other words, that's not the design. The design is they become one flesh. Marriage is for life. The other is in 1 Corinthians where the Apostle Paul says, if you were non-believers and you became Christians, but you're already married, in that particular instance that I was not a believer, but I became a believer having already been married. And the person I'm married to doesn't want to be married to a Christian. They don't believe in Christ and they don't want anything to do with you crazy Christian. He says, if they depart, let them depart. And that's the basis for abandonment. That the person knows the context, that the person leaves the marriage voluntarily. This is not your fault. If the unbeliever wants to leave, let them leave. But you don't initiate that because you have a sanctifying role. And that person may come to Christ because your presence and the children are sanctified in the marriage. So don't leave the marriage just because you became a Christian and the other person didn't. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. It's funny what people do to twist the scriptures to make an argument for abandonment. That's... um, that's not uh, what we, t- like, emo- he's emotionally abandoned me. 
that's not what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians. And I know that it's hard and that I'm not laughing at your pain. I'm saying that we can do all kinds of, of lies to ourselves, rationalizations, to make ourselves feel better, but, but it won't help. L- l- the truth sets you free. The sunlight is the best antiseptic. Just, just go with what God said, and maybe you need to be suffering through this, this hardship. I don't say that in a cavalier way. I don't mean that uh, without reference to the pain that I'm describing. I have things in my life, we all have things in our lives that God has called us to do that we maybe daily say, I don't want to carry this. I don't want to do this. Have you got any prayer time with God where you're like, God, I don't want to do this. I don't want to have to be in this situation. And God, uh, remember what Jesus said to Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, I'm not taking the thorn away. No, my grace is made, uh, made more, more expressive through your suffering. You're going to be able to work through this because my grace is sufficient for you. A wife of quarrels and a house of association are two things that you don't want to have together. In Proverbs 21, 19, it's better to live in a desert land than have a wife of quarrels and vexation. I love this church because you ladies are not these things. You're not a wife of quarrels and vexation. You know why? Because that's the flesh and that's your sin nature. And you could be that way. And you may have patterns and have in the past. And maybe this has been a problem. But you are aware that greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world. And the work of God through you makes you able to not give in to your sinful tendencies toward anger. And then anger plus speech. You don't have to. Better to dwell in the corner of the roof than have a wife of quarrels in a house of sharing is Proverbs 25, 24, and it's the exact same language as 21, 9. And the men and I had a chuckle last night. Not the Mennonites. The men and I had a chuckle last night from this verse because it's the exact same verse as 21, 9. You get these little snippets through Proverbs that, I mean, does anyone come to mind when you read this, right? Sanford and Son. The honeymooners. The honeymooners is a great example because she, she, Alice, right? She represents wisdom. He represents folly. And she's just constantly waiting for him to do something stupid. But then she gets her, she gets her lick in by pronouncing how stupid it is. And you see this pattern of just sin, but it's, it's delightful to watch. I mean, it's funny to us, but, um, it's funny because like these are funny because it's true. This is something people experience. We all know of this. Proverbs twenty-seven fifteen: a constant dripping in a day of heavy rain and a wife of quarrels are alike. The one who hides her hides the wind, literally probably restrains her, restrains the wind, hiding in the sense of restraining, and the oil in his right hand he grasps. Try to get a good handful of oil, right? You you are hopeless. You can't restrain. You can't hang on to this. It's beyond your power. Now, what's the reason in the divine institutions? Why is it this way? The one who hides her restrains this woman, restrains the wind. Because she has a volition, because God made us thoughtful, deciding creatures. 
Why don't we look in 1 Peter chapter 3, where you have the wisdom of the Spirit of God through the Apostle Peter on womanhood and manhood and marriage. Now, we've looked at Ephesians 5, verses verses 22 through 33. In Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, the topic is wives and then husbands, three verses for wives and then eight verses for husbands. And this is the inversion. Women are addressed for six verses in First Peter 3, 1 through 6, and then husbands just one little stinger uh, that tells us so much. In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. Usually this word disobedient is describing... Um, Actually, the root idea in this word is unconvinced, unpersuaded. And it's usually used in a sense of uh, disobedient to the command to trust in Christ, somebody that's a summary uh, described summarily as an unbeliever. Now, the word doesn't mean to believe or not believe. It means to be convinced or persuaded and therefore obey or disobey. And so I believe with... um, with Charles Ryrie and his note and his, if you've got a Ryrie study Bible to say that they're, they're an unbeliever, that um, that's the primary sense. But let me ask you, are there moments in your life where you believe more or less of what God's word has said? Is everybody a perfectly consistently faith constantly? Or is it out of your head sometimes you're not thinking about it and so you're really not in that moment trusting? You see what I mean? Um, that's where all our sin comes from. We're not trusting God, we're disobedient. And so I would extend and apply this. I would apply this to uh, you gentlemen who are believers when you're not obedient to the word. Love your wives as Christ has loved the church and gave himself for her. All the things that we have in terms of the scriptural commands for husbands. When you're disobedient to the word, your wives are uh, on notice here for how to approach it. Now, ladies, my desire for you, out of Titus chapter 2, is that each one of you would become so well acquainted with 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6, that you would, first of all, be blessed by the contents there, that you would love what it says, and that you would understand it thoroughly. And then, that you would be able to champion these things with other women. Titus 2 says that the teaching of women by women really popular thing in our culture, but the teaching of women by women is about being a woman. It's about living in the institutions God's given us and doing it well. And I can say 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6 all day, but when you say it somehow to each other, it's a much more powerful uh, moment. And uh, I think that's part of God's design of the power inherent in womanhood which we honor and exalt, as 1 Peter 3, 7 tells us to. <clears throat> Be submissive to your own husbands so that even if uh, there are dis- there, any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won over without a word by the behavior of their wives. 
All right. One over without a word by the behavior of their wives. A wife of quarrels in a house of association is the opposite of a house of sharing. That's the opposite of winning him over without a word. That's giving as much word as you can to voice your frustration. And you might even be right. Notice the context that he's disobedient to the word. I'm just telling him the truth. You're not even a, you're not quarreling with him except that he's wrong. Even in this worst case scenario where you've got the truth and he's rejecting it, don't be a wife of quarrels and contention because it's not going to help. My prayer is that your husbands have a pastor. I will, whenever I get a sense that I need to, I will tell them three little words. Do your job. I will tell them that. And I might even ask it as an interrogative, interrogative presentation. I might say, are you doing your job? <laughs> yes, that's a problem, but what is your job, right? And I, I'll ask them for the same thing. Let's keep each other accountable about our responsibilities. But see, he's not doing his job. What do you do? You submit to him so that you can win him over without a word by your behavior. As they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. <clears throat> I believe what this is saying is that you love God enough to obey God and you're trusting in God, and it's about God. Did I mention God is in the equation? I'm respecting my husband, she says, because I'm loving my Creator and I'm trusting in Him. And that strong position of faith enables me to make these decisions about this person. There's three parties. There's you, God, and the knucklehead. Not just you and the knucklehead. Well, I don't know what to do. I can't. Hey, that's weakness. And when you're not trusting in God, we have nothing of his word. Of course you have no clue. You're weak. And just do whatever your sin nature says. But this is God's way. Is that you be strong because of your position of strength from faith and what God has said. And so he gets to watch you live your spiritual life and it becomes overwhelming. Now, I hear, um, I hear a possible uh, challenge to this. Just turn on the pulpit mic. You're fired. Rapidly rap raptastic. Really, the secret is I've always remembered to be a stand-up comedian. Now I get to. <laughs> Mitch Hedberg, Hedberg once said, um, I, I didn't ever want to be a, a stand-up comedian, but I do. I did always like holding ice cream cones. All right. Um, the objection that's arising in our hearts, right, is he won't notice. He doesn't see anything. He doesn't know anything but what the sports scores are. He can't hear a thing I have to say. He doesn't care about anything. He's just, he's like so insensitive about life and so unprepossessing about things around him. Uh, that's Maureen O'Hara talking to John Wayne and McClintock. He's so unprepossessing. 
And he doesn't have any circumspection. He just doesn't know what's going on around him. And, and what, what you mean is, and what's true about him, is that he's not as sensitive about things as you are. And to you, it seems un, un, unthinkable how clueless he is sometimes. And to him, he's like, how could she live with such high sensitivity to everything? How does she even get through life, he thinks, and she thinks he must not know anything because he doesn't notice anything. And the truth is that you're going to have to take God at his word and trust him in what he says in verse 2. He will observe your chaste and respectful behavior. And so you, can, you, you ought to turn that, that tongue, that voice, that, that anger, or not the anger, but the, but the many words back to God in prayer. God, help him see. He doesn't notice. Help him see. Help him see. And talk to the Father about that instead of uh, trying to replace your husband's pastor with your voice. <clears throat> see, when your men need to respond to the word, you don't want them to submit to you as their Bible-teaching pastor. But we do need to submit to the Word of God. And so, welcome to the household of households, the local church. Now, while we're talking about things that women are interested in and focused on, and always have been, because God made you the way He did, He talks about the way you present yourself, your adornment, well translated here, must not merely be external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses. Now, we often quibble here or quip here about it's better to put on dresses than not, and just imagine the alternative, that if you showed up in your muumuu or whatever, uh, with everything all, all, uh, <laughs> akimbo, all, all askance, everything uh, awry. Um, he's saying it's not only the external we're so grateful that you take care of the external. Thank you. Thank you. It is a labor of love, and we know that, and it's a, it's a challenge for all of us, but he's saying it's not about the outside. The point he's making is the inner person. Let your adornment in verse 4 be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. So verse 2 goes with verses 3 and 4. You're going to win him over without a word as he watches how you conduct yourself. This is so different from the guy pulling his hair out in the corner of the roof, living in a house of sharing with a wife of corals. This is, this is pleasant. It's marvelous. And it's a great blessing to him because you are connecting to your creator and you are worried about, you're focused on what God is focused on, what he wants for you. I want to be precious in my adornment in the sight of God. I want God's eyes to look at me and be pleased first and foremost. It's the in, inner person. And so think about that. How many beautiful, dolled-up, model-like women that are worried about chasing that? And as you, you age, it gets harder. Now I have to go into interventions and the lie of surgery that that's going to solve the inevitable problem of gravity and aging, and it doesn't generally solve it. And, and well, that didn't work. Let's fix it. And then five or six fixes later, and <laughs> oh, no, oh, no, L.A. in the mid-40s and 50s. Ugh, that's, that's trouble, right? And, and all that botched stuff that happens, and it's real sad. But it's these people that are trying to feel better because they're, they're hurt inside, and they want to feel better about themselves. And, and, uh, and look, you, you need to let, let the Word of God sink in a little bit, Christians, that 
You have a creator and his opinion matters more than what the world thinks of what you look like. Let that go and grab hold of the truth that your creator is looking at the heart. Let's borrow from 1 Samuel. Man is looking at the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And so if I'm worried about what God thinks, I'm looking at the inner person as my real adornment. This is what he's saying is the means by which you'll have that quiet and chaste person that your husband notices. That's how, that, this is the acid that melts away all that scar tissue and fat over his heart to see what he needs to see. And eventually, this has a potential of jump-starting his conscience back to being who he's supposed to be. It's power. We're talking about the power of womanhood. And it's the opposite of what you might have thought. We all know women are powerful talkers. But the only talking going on here is prayer. And it's not prayer out loud so he can hear it. (laughs) For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. And uh, let's grab an obvious example that blows our minds that Peter would use it, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You've become her children if you do what's right without being frightened by any fear. The inner person is the focus. Being a spiritually maturing woman is the focus in 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6, when he says the issue is fear. The issue is the inner person. That's your adornment. Your spiritual life, by God's design, is supposed to do this supernatural work on your husband's conscience when he's out of line. A supernatural work. And this is a a, a procedure that Peter gives you. I've I've had occasion to give this advice when asked, what do I do? What does Peter tell you to do? I don't know. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6, what does Peter tell you to do? The person reads it and says... Do you have any other advice? It's like the, that old joke about the guy that's hanging, he, he slipped off a ledge, um, and he's hanging suspended over a 750-foot chasm, uh, holding onto a root, and he calls up, is anybody up there? Can anybody help me? Can anybody help me? Go, oh, God, help me. And he hears a voice from way up, higher up the mountain. It says, just have faith and turn loose. And the guy says, Is there anybody else? (laughs) It can't possibly reply to me because my problem, my situation is really troubled. I mean, don't give me this pablum about respecting my husband and, and letting him observe my chaste and respectful behavior as I'm really adorning myself with the inner person that God wants me to be because I'm pleasing to him. Don't give me that spiritual life stuff. I'm in real trouble. Well, I need real help. I mean, is there anybody I can appeal to with some real power to fix this idiot? This is the passage that tells you where your power is. And God is asking you to do something a little counterintuitive. Trust him. Don't be afraid. Well, it's not going to work. That's fear. No, you you go out in faith and you trust God as you do what Peter's describing. And you are, by this... God's daughter in favor and good standing with him. And he does not like his children to be abused. And he has a problem with Mr. Knucklehead. 
as you, more and more as you're responding to God and trusting him and fulfilling your responsibility as he began. And in the same way, you wise be submissive to your own husbands. I'm covering my end. So you're heaping coals on his head. Don't you want to do that? <laughs> Don't you want him to come around? Well, this is the way. It feels better on the short term to, to hold forth and say your piece and get him told, Alice, it feels better. Like anger feels good at first, but it doesn't solve any problems and it just kicks the can down the road and, and increases the scar tissue. It just makes it a worse situation. All right, that's the ladies. Now, what about the men? I asked the men if they would memorize 1 Peter 3, 7. And at the end, they were able to say, the verse you want us to memorize is 1 Peter 3, 7. <laughs> 1 Peter 3.7 is the gentleman verse in the Bible. It's the one that tells us the other side of the coin about husbands and their responsibilities. They have a high responsibility because God, we have a high responsibility because God has entrusted us with his daughters. You husbands, in the same way, you need to be submissive to your creator and put yourself last and think of the other person as more important. That's how men submit, not in terms of authority, but in terms of their comfort, like Jesus sacrificed himself so that he could save us. In the same way, you live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she's a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. That... Um, Supreme pizza of a verse with so many things going on. It says a lot of things. The one part that kind of sets everyone's teeth on edge or half the people's teeth on edge is as someone weaker. And you, well, what does that mean? Well, in the age of 45 caliber single action army pistols, they said, they said God, made man, uh, God made man and Samuel Colt made him equal. You know, in, in the day in which there's cars, and you can drive just as fast as I can drive. So that equalizes things in our lifestyle. And the day when um, the physical differences between men and women aren't quite as stark as they are uh, when we're all just out there camping, right? And uh, who can carry more firewood more times and that kind of thing. Like, in our lifestyle, we don't really have a sense, but I think it's pretty straightforward what it means that someone is weaker. Women are different from men, and it isn't a hit on you. You're made for a different purpose. You've got a, a stainless steel vessel and a porcelain ceramic vessel that's of um, beautiful craftsmanship and exquisite design. And it's marvelous, and it is not designed to be the stainless steel vessel. You're that porcelain vessel that's, that's beautiful and glorious, and your power is in being what you are. Well, I'm going to go take the load of the stainless steel. Well, you're going to break and fragment and splat. But, but don't worry, ladies, about uh, him saying someone weaker. It doesn't mean you're weak-minded. It might imply that you're more sensitive about things. I think C.S. Lewis had a really good point when he talked about the differences between men and women. In terms of headship in a house, usually uh, international affairs are handled by the, the executive, the head of state, and domestic matters are more for, for those under the head of state. So he said... If, you're, uh, if, if, if the neighbor's dog bites one of your children, who do you want to handle it with the neighbors, the husband or the wife? Well, um, if you want to have no relationship with the neighbors, <laughs> <laughs> if, you, 
get Mama Bear over there, right? To insist that justice be served, I'm going to get that dog to bite your kid. No, no, she, you wouldn't do that. But, but it's a great thought experiment. Yeah, there's a difference. And we're, we are different. We're made that way for a purpose. I think that uh, to call, call it fine versus coarse uh, adjustment, fine filtering, fine ground coffee, which is always better. Men were coarse grind. We let a lot of stuff go. And women, you almost let nothing go. It's got to be just this way. <laughs> I think of the sparrow, the little, little sparrows making their nests. The little male sparrow flies, flies over with a twig. A lot of work to get that twig and carry it up to the nest. And, and she says, not that twig. You go take that twig back, you'll get me another twig, and I'll tell you whether this one works. And she's, she's building her nest, and she knows what she needs. And it's just like she wants. That's why women do so well, adult women in the same household together. Right? It's such an, a universally acknowledged, wonderful thing to have two women in the same house. <laughs> Doesn't everybody know that if you have two adult women in the same house, that it works perfectly, that there's no problems ever? Now, guys, we get tired of each other and kind of, you know, but, but we kind of deal. We just, you know, we can leave our clothes on the floor. We can live through all kinds of horrible uh, uh, unsanitary conditions, and right? We're just different. But, but women are made this way, and you need to recognize it, man. The last thing I'll say about 1 Peter 3.7, which will be a scandal, but it's true is that sometimes we get rough in our hearts and we say, why does she have to be so sensitive? Sometimes we say, oh, come on, just... Can we please talk about what we're actually talking about? No, I want to talk about how you're speaking to me. Well, that's not the issue. How I'm saying it isn't what we're talking about. What we're talking about is what we're talking... Can we please keep it on what we're talking about? No, I think it's just as important because how you say... Okay, so we will advance no, no advancement in the conversation, right? And we get rough... And we want the, why do you have to be like that? But that is a homosexual impulse. That's the scandal. You don't want her to be a man. You don't want her to think like a man. You don't want her to try to pretend to be a man. You wanted a wife. So 1 Peter 3, 7 says, recognize you got one. Be gentle. And recognize that she has honor as a fellow heir of life, of the grace of life. And recognize that the way you treat God's kids has a lot to do with his relationship with you. So that your prayers will not be hindered. Men, we have a great challenge to love our wives and to be head of, a, of, the, of the household, to do this work. And to be as God describes, it's a great calling. It's more responsibility really than privilege. This is more of a, a labor uh, tasking than, um, than just setting us up. But God has blessed us by giving us these wives and he has challenged us by allowing us to persist with sinful natures in this life. Yeah, we have the Holy Spirit. We can be what he wants us to be in marriage and that's the last we'll say as we move to the next institution next time, parents and children. Our Father, we thank you for your goodness to us in giving us our wives and providing husbands to these wives who will love you and so self-sacrifice for their benefit. Father, this is the design that you've given us, and it is a higher calling than we're capable of. 
Thank you for the wisdom to see that too, that we need your spirit. In this, in this phase of life, we need your spirit to enable us to love as we should. Help us embrace these things, these things of your design, so that we're walking worthy in the power that you've given us. In Christ's name, amen.